so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, I want to go back to the days of Honey Bunch when you were galloping across the fields of Gloucestershire, because that's where you grew up, wasn't it, Gloucestershire? Yep, Cheltenham, only half a mile from the race course. So, you know, I really feel for Cheltenham. But Honey Bunch was badly named. He was a horrible little so-and-so. You know, if you went to catch him, he'd turn his back on you like they do. You know, and you go nearer and he'd trot off. Yeah, horrible. And my sister used to lead me, I didn't want to ride, used to lead me before school, her on a bicycle and me on Honey Bunch with a rope. And we'd, we'd be going along the lanes. You could do it in those days. We'd go along the lanes. I'd be on the grass verge. She's on the road. And she'd say, right, you know how the teachers do it. Right, we'll trot now, you know. And then she'd, we'll canter down. Oh, I don't want to canter, you know, and I'd jump off. I'm a horrible little boy, horrible brat. And uh, she got round that by not saying we'll canter one day. She just slapped the horse on the backside and let it go. Oh, wow. And of course, well, you know, Hannah, once you've had speed, you think, well, isn't this better than this? trotting bit you know yeah so is that then how you got your love for speed yeah absolutely yeah yeah but I mean, it was no intention of making it a living you know it was just the fact that I failed nine O levels at school and what else does a small lightweight do so did you go to a riding school or anything no uh, but my sisters rode and my parents rode occasionally just fun riding uh, we, we, we did a few shows but uh, you know, it wasn't very good. The The only cup I had was a nice size, you know, big cup, two silver handles on it. And it was for the best under 16 rider at Cheltenham Horse Show. But it only dawned on me years later that my father being chairman of the show might have had some influence on that. That's a good advantage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lots of wins. So from then, so you said from school you didn't get many O-levels, so from then, is that when you pushed yourself towards racing? I got zero from nine. I mean, they're GCSEs now, aren't they, you know, but zero from nine. And I was at Tewkesbury Grammar School. It, it, I, I wasn't thick. I was always in the top three in every subject. In my mocks, superb. Come the examination day, I think I was just cocky. I didn't read the questions. And it's so important. How can you answer if you don't know what you're answering? I'd read the first few lines and go, you know, diddly squat, and away I went. But uh, I, I often thought I should sit them again. And then I thought, but wouldn't it be awful if I failed them all again? <laughs> be a complete waste of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I read somewhere that it was a member of your family that was in the racing industry. Yep. Yep, my sister married a jockey um, <coughs> excuse me, called Paddy Cowley, an Irishman, obviously, and he was doing well. Um, and around Cheltenham in those days, there were 10 trainers, and they trained up on top of Cleve Hill. You know those lovely photographs we get on ITV looking down. from the, We used to, just going up from Presbury, Woodman, Coulton, the Southern, the villages there, just getting up onto the hill would make a horse half fit. And, and then there's 3,000 acres of common land there. I mean, we could gallop forever, you know, it was brilliant. Uh, and as I say, 10 trainers, lots of Gold Cup winners, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there were, there were jobs around where I lived. But 
the premise of if you go to a small stable, you'll get the rides is correct. But when they've got a fancied one, they're going to get a jockey, you know. I mean, I got the hard pullers, one eye, bad legs, but it got you going. But, but Harry, I went four years as a professional jockey in different small stables without a winner, 60 rides. I mean, that was horrendous, you know. How anybody continued, continued rather, to give me rides, I don't know. So what then kept you motivated to continue with it and not give up? what else could I do you know and but but I did work it out eventually I worked out that if you went somewhere where there were lots of winners the crumbs off the table would be enough to feed you and uh, I knew from being in the weighing room for that, that time that Fred Winter who was champion jockey was about to retire at the age of 39 which was late in those days jockeys Josh Gifford um, the late Josh Gifford, lovely man, retired at 29 and other people went 30, 30, but Fred Winter had gone on to 39. So I approached him and said, look, you know, you hardly know me. You're at the top end where the radiator is in all the changing rooms. I'm down by the loo. But, oh, he said, oh, no, I, of course I know you. He said, you, yeah, you, you ride, you ride well, you're honest and horses jump better for you than most people. Uh, so he said, you, you can have a job with me. I'm going to start in June. And he said, you'll have to fight your corner because there'll be other lads wanting rides. You know, you won't be staying with Jockey, of course. You'll just get whatever you get. And um, his letter to me then, so that was, oh, I don't know, probably February. His letter to me in April, May said, uh, I mean, it's quite public school attitude, really. Not dear Richard or anything. You know, we're jockeys in the same room, even though I'm low down. He, it was Pittman. Um, I'd like you to start on June the 1st. Um, it's, it's lovely and sunny and warm. You'll be the first person here, along with two others will join later in the week. We don't have any accommodation, but I've got a very good tennis court changing room. And uh, he, it, it was wooden. And he said, it's summer, so, you know, you can bed down there until we sort something out. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that in this day and age? You, know, say, you have to live in the tennis hut. It sounds quite an adventure, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you're young, you don't care, do you? You know, you, you, you just want to get your foot on the ladder. So what was Fred Winter's method of training like? Was that different to trainers today? Yeah. They all trained differently. I mean, there were some great trainers in Lambour, and there was a good 10-foot-high wall between Fook Warwin, who trained three Grand National winners, Gold Cups, everything, and Fred Winter, you see, and we used to, big rivalry, uh, Fred used to ride for um, Foot Warwin, uh, and, and uh, it was a lot of rivalry, you know, we'd say, oh, over the walls had a winner, you know, and, um, so that's how it went on, and those trainers, Stan Meller started training, and there were quite a few uh, well-established jump trainers, the Lambourne Gallops, gorgeous, and um, there's a, a round bowl, on the grass and in all weather where you'd go a mile round and then it would straighten up and then go up a hill and you could go straight up the steep hill or go sideways so you know they were it, it wasn't interval training like we have now it was long training and um, Fred and I once we had a decent string we'd go up together first and do it and we'd walk down the hill a little bit and we'd sit there like Indians watching 
the string you see, and of course they'd go round the bowl and then up the back of the hall, and you could hear every word because it reverberated across, even though it was some distance, and on a cold frosty morning you could hear every word, and you know the lads would be coming down and they'd be saying, God, the so-and-so old man's in a bad mood today, isn't he? And Fred would just look at me and smile and say, let that be a lesson, you know, when you're talking, I can hear. So, but great man. So yes, it was longer work. Um, now in Lamb One, of course, got no end of a mile long or weather, a six foot long or weather, a round or weather, uh, two uphills, very, very steep, short but steep. They've got everything. It's, it's a fantastic place to, to train. But yes, that's a long answer to your question. Methods have changed amazingly. Do you think that was a better way of training, would you say, like longer distances? I, 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 I can't say. I can't say because I, I've been out of riding work for so long. And it works now, doesn't it? I mean, everyone attributes Martin Pike to changing it. And of course he did, straight uh, or weather, going nicely uphill. Um, and what was very interesting about Martin, he was a bookmaker's son. His father came in one day and said, I bought a racehorse, you're going to train. You know, no absolute experience whatsoever, but common sense. And he was going to put his all-weather around the edge of this field going up there. And then he suddenly thought, no, it will put pressure on the horse's legs going that way and then that way. Straight line is the way to go. So it's, it's a famous gallop, wood chip. And they were so clever, he even bought an old chipping machine and chipped his own wood for the, for the surface. But another thing that Martin was very clever at, you know horses get colic, tummy ache. You and I take a Rennie or whatever we take. A horse starts going like a dog who's going to sit down, you know, pouring up the straw because it, it wants to alleviate the pain and get down. That can kill it because of their in huge intestines. As they roll, uh, the intestines can twist, and it's called twisted gut, can kill them. And Martin said quite often it's because their bowels aren't working properly, you see. So he said, what makes a horse poo? Put it in a horse box, as if it's going to the races. So if ever they had one with a sign of colic, they put it in the horse box, take it all around the villages, around where he trains in Somerset, bing, bingo. No calling the vet out, the blockage had gone. So why I'm saying this, it was, he was ahead of the game because he came from a clean sheet, not from a racing background. He didn't inherit ideas, he thought about his ideas. Anyway, that's, so, so just to quickly, everyone thinks Martin invented this interval training. But when I was a kid, the Queen Mother's trainer, Peter Caslett down in Kent, trained that way in a park, but only because that's all he had, was a two furlong strip up in the park, you see. So he actually did interval training without probably knowing what it did. You, you have to keep the heart rate up, you know, you, you canter up, canter down, half speed up, canter down, let them rip because you're keeping the heart rate up, but also lowering the pressure on them. It's fascinating. I love thinking, seeing how different trainers work. Yeah, just while we were talking about colic, my mum always taught me to feed horses bran if they've got colic to push it out. Would you say that's- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, nice bran mash. I, 
I don't know if people still feed bran mashes. We used to do it on a Tuesday, no, Wednesday night after a galloping day so that they had an easy day on Thursday and then give them a, a bran mash on a Saturday night because they had an easy day on Sunday. Whether they do that now with all these modern mixes, I, I don't know. I wanted to talk about the riding styles because thank goodness for YouTube because most things back in the day I wasn't alive so it's good that I can watch things. But I noticed that people rode longer in the leg. Am I right in mm. saying that? Why was that? It all changed. I mean, years ago before my time and you know, I'm, I'm very ancient, but before my time people rode full length. And you know, all these old photographs of Beecher's Brook, they are literally lying back. Yeah on the horse's tail. And then we upped the game over the years. And then it upped again. Although we did have some stylists ahead of their time. Andy Turnell, whose father trained, rode as short as Lester Piggott over the national fences as Piggott rode on the flat. And his balance was superb. But over Beecher's Brook, in the days when there was a big drop, you had to, let the rain slip through your fingers on landing. You know, you go in nice and stylish and get the, the stride right. But as they're landing, you would slip the reins and sit back because of the drop, their noses often hit the ground and you needed your body as ballast to keep their bottom down. Because once it comes, once the tail comes past your eyes, you've had it. <laughs> so, um, and, and Andy Turnell used to ride a short, then in those days with the big big drops but in 1975 he was slipping the reins like this going backwards and missed the buckle end of the reins and did a double somersault off the back side of the horse well self-preservation he's done that you see and he's grabbed paul kellaway who was landing on verona quite happy thinking well that was good and the next thing, they're both sitting in the grass holding hands. Oh, my golly. <laughs> but so Andy was ahead of his time. And there were other stylists. The Queen Mother's jockey, David Mould, very stylish, even though he rode slightly longer. The whole thing changed from America, really, with stirrups coming up. And now the toe, toe in the iron. Although I've been brought to, to, to account several times because I'm quite critical of toe in the iron. I've seen jockeys on the flat fall off, you know, horse swerves, boing, and the commentators, oh, he could, nothing he could have done about that. Yes, there was. You know, if he'd had his foot in the iron, he wouldn't have come off. And, and I get a lot of stick, you know, then about it. And now they are riding, not actually with the end of the toe in the iron, but diagonally across the ball of the foot. I, I thought this, this is what I wanted to ask you. And I wondered why that was, because it's almost, you're, you're turning your toes right in, aren't you? Yeah. They say, in their own defence, that, I mean, it's a style thing, you know, they're all doing it. Um, they say in their own defence that it alters their body weight on top of the horse and they can get down and more behind him. And that's probably so. I mean, we see all these videos of the jockey coaches getting young people going. It's all about getting very low on the neck, isn't it? And push, push, push. Whereas before people were more upright. As you know, it's all got to come from the pelvis. You know, you push forward as your bottom half of your body goes back to elongate the horse. 
if you can get its stride to elongate half an inch, quarter of an inch, in 10 strides, it's a short head. You know, it is so important how to push, and they do teach, they do teach this very well, the jockey coaches. I mean, Nick Fitzgerald, John Reed, all over the country, they've got them. One thing I'm going to ask them on Twitter very shortly is, can you explain, because you don't teach jockeys, why they're all bumping the saddle? You know, when they start pushing. Yeah. Okay, get down and behind them push, but some of them are going bump every stride, you know. Yeah. Sorry if I'm making you sick doing that. Um, but it, to me, it's ugly. It, 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 it cannot help them to be bounced on the spine. But anyway, you know, I'm a silly old, you know, you know, they say about jockeys, old jockeys, oh yeah, the fences were stiffer, they were higher and all this. But you know, you're entitled to an opinion, aren't you? Yeah, so when a jockey is stood up more, is there a reason for that? Because then, you know, when they're, um, you've got a group together and then you can really see the different levels of where the jockey is. Is that a reason for that? Yes. It's just a, a matter of what you do yourself. When they're standing up, I mean, you've, if you look at jockeys from the sideways, they can be more upright or, or down, but you need a sort of straight line down through the, the bulk of your body, whether your trunk is forward, as long as it's down through, through your, your hip to your knee, down into the horse. You, balance is so important. If you're unbalanced, the horse is unbalanced, isn't it? But no, you can still be more upright and still be correct. It, it's a matter of preference, really, isn't it? But you're right. When you look at them, you can tell jockeys by their stance, can't you? I mean, look at Bryony Frost now. Always got a head down, very low. Never pushes or pulls at a fence. She's right when she gets there. Her striding is brilliant. Um, she, John Franklin was, was, and still, in my opinion, one of the greatest men at a fence. He didn't push or pull. He was right when he got there because he was an international show jumper. And Bryony is saying, oh, incidentally, did you see the recent thing on all social media where she's been given, oh, what's the horse? Black horse, Black Corton. Oh, yeah. And, and she rode him, a first day rode him over Dartmoor with her father. It's brilliant. I mean, there's the love of, one of the loves of her life, you know, horses. And he's gone out over the moors. Oh, how brilliant. And, and they've, come to a, a little ford uh, and, and she said now come on Blackie you know you can do this you know and have a look at it and then he goes through and and then the next thing is she's jumping a row of gorse bushes I mean it is so lovely her her empathy with horses is just marvellous I mean lots of people empathize with them of course but uh, she's done an awful lot for for females and how things have changed Hannah in my day, when I was riding winners, I had an old mini car, which I had to bump start it in the morning to get going. Um, Bryony's got an Aston Martin. The only other person I know in racing with an Aston Martin jumping is Venetia Williams. She has an Aston Martin for three days a week and a BMW 7 Series for the other four. You know, it's, but for Bryony, live for Bryony. You know, but can you just see her looking over the top? You know? <laughs> I saw in the interview actually you mentioned about a bit of a nerve-wracking experience when you were galloping through a fog so have you had any other nerve-wracking experiences? Well when you first get run away with it's scary isn't it because you're totally I mean presumably you have been have you? I go across fields and I can't stop. <laughs> yeah well the first time is always scary now when I was at Fred Winters to start with and the string went from six the first week to 
50, and that's, that was the maximum they had in those days. Walwyn, Fred Rymel, Fred Winter, the top people only had 50 horses. Now, although the big trainers won't admit it, they've got a call on nearly 300 because they have outlying yards who are bringing them on. And if I used to do it for local trainers, and if they had one coughing or got a leg, they'd ring you up and said, look, what have you got that's fit? You said, we've got these five, right. A box will get them, you see. So they've got a call on a lot of horses. So we only had 50 horses. And because I'd sort of established myself as the leader of the lads who were going to get rides, so that's, okay, I would be at the back and Fred Winter would be at the front. And in the summer, there was a, a, a dirt, I mean, the all-weather thing was now, of course, a, synthetic things. It was just rotivated dirt in this circle. And we set off with 26 horses and he rode a horse called 177 who was so hard pulling, none of us could ever hold it. And he'd be in front. And he said, you go at the back, Richard, just keep your eye on things, you see. Below me, this thing took off and I was agonizing to hold it because once you go from 26 to 25th, you're upside another one, you upset that. So I've gone tearing through them, upsetting them all and encour encouraging them all to run away. And about 10 of us whoosh, drowned Fred, the trainer, because we were all being run. And it was my fault. It was totally out of control. I mean, what goes through your mind is, you know, well, I'll just have to keep going all day until it's tired. Now, being out of control is, is not nice. But just going back to in the fog on Cleve Hill, there was, there's a big cliff there, you see. And the fog disorientates. You don't know where you are, where you're going. I mean, we, no one did go over the cliff, but we, we could have done. And at the moment, it's just getting a resurgence. There's no, been, no trainers there for years. Emma Baker, who trained in a smallish way at Stonewall, has moved there. And Luke Harvey has just bought 26 acres in a bungalow, and he trains his own point-to-pointers. So it might get a resurgence. Going back to the 1973 National, what was your, th uh, your thought process when you could see Red Rum coming behind, beginning to close the gap? What, what did you think to try and stay in front? Well, I didn't see him coming because at that stage, Chris was very tired and you don't look back and unbalance horses, but I heard him coming. But if I can just take you back a bit further, the thought process for the race, Chris is a champion at Cheltenham, two mile, the Queen Mother champion two mile up. He's now running over four and a half miles and 30 fences with 12 stone on his back. So anyone with brains says, right, you drop him out the back of the 40 runners, switch him off and lob round, keeping stamina. You see, because stamina was going to be the doubt. Few horses stay the trip. You get them now coming off the Anchor Bridge Road, 10 of them there. You get to the last fence, there's four. You get to the elbow, there might be two. You know, it's that extra bit that is so demanding. Anyway, Fred Winter said, look, he's such an enthusiastic jumper. If we try and hold him up and a hard pulling horse, he will jump on the back of something in front of him because a lot of horses all do that, you see. I mean, you can go to the first 40 runners and you pick your spot that you're going to jump and all of a sudden three strides away, horses have gone across you either way. So we agreed that he is so bold, he would have jumped on something's back. And if you don't get round, you can't win. So he said, right, 
we'll do what Lester Piggott does on the flat. We'll go to the front and slow the race down from the front. And that, and most, in, yeah, yeah, people follow a senior jockey and think, well, he knows what pace he's going. And, and, you know. So that was the theory. In reality, every time he saw a fence, he went, yeah, woohoo, you know, let's go. He was never running away with me, although people thought you're a brainless and all this sort of thing. I went round the inside, so you're saving lengths in four and a half miles, as it was then. It was his quickening into the fence. Some want to go in and want to jump in. Others are a little bit cagey. He wanted to, so he would quicken going in of his own volition. He would jump absolutely precision over the top of them and be galloping before he hit the ground. So he was making lengths saving ground on the inside and his jumping so we got quite clear that way but everyone thought he was running away he was never running away it was just his attributes of jumping and what a thrill honey you know what it's like to go fast at a fence and to fly it it's it's great isn't it well sadly i've never jumped a fence like that but hopefully in the future you will you will anyway sorry i i've interrupted your thought pattern there Going into the second circuit, he was well clear because the only challenger who'd been on the outside and fairly close, Grace Romero, fell. So that left me at the water jump with the circuit to go 20 lengths in front. To go into the second circuit, normally a lot of noise, you know, all the runners around you. and It was eerie. There was no sound. And I could see jockeys who'd fallen on the previous circuit standing on the rails, you know. One jockey was holding a bridle. No horse, but he got a bridle. Oh, it was quite, you had so much time to look, you see. And holes in the fences from disasters. In the and when I got to the beaches the second time, there was a public address in those days because people would, would line the whole place. I could hear Michael O'Hare, the late great commentator, saying, and Dick Pittman and Chris Park, 25 lengths clear. Red Rum's coming out of the pack, but Fletcher's kicking him along. I thought, that'll do, that's fine. Anyway, by the time I got to Foynaven, the next fence, David Nicholson, the late David Nicholson, was sitting on, I think he rode Barsnet, and it was picking grass. He'd fall and he'd pick grass. He was like an Indian in the old John Wayne films, on top of a mountain, watching the cowboys and Indians fighting below. And he stood there, he was quite supercilious, and he said, actually, Richard, you're 33 and a half lengths clear kick on and you'll win. Well, kick on was what I wasn't going to do because stamina was paramount. And Foynaven is such a long way, it's the 23rd, is it? Yeah, it's a long way from home. Anyway, to cut a long story short from there, by the time we crossed the Anchor Bridge Road and came onto the racecourse proper, you know, nearly home, I could hear for the first time Red Rum. It was fast ground, so it was drum, 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 drum. And he was a high blower. You know, when he ex exhaled his nostrils flat, so you could hear, <laughs> so it's drum, drum, <laughs> getting louder and louder. And poor old Chris, he went from running away, still going to the second last, to gone. And his legs, which were good moving horse, were start starting to like swim almost, you know, coming out the side. And the most amazing thing, he had half-cocked ears, and even his ears went, 
Now, if you haven't got any strength in your ears, you have gone to the bottom of the barrel, haven't you? Mm. And so I could hear him getting nearer and nearer. Um, I made a big mistake on the run in. I thought I've got to wake him up and I picked my stick up in my right hand and he was a big horse, 17-2, very heavy. And once I let go of the reins a bit, changed my hand, he fell away. I should have sat and held him, got to the elbow. Anyway, I've gone off course a bit, pulled him back. I think I lost two and a half lengths and I'm beaten half a length in the end. But Brian Fletcher was very clever as jockeys are. Instead of challenging me close up, he went wide. He could see he was picking me off and he went wide because as you know, one horse challenged by another, they find a little bit extra. Even if they're dead on their feet, they find extra. So Brian came wide and uh, you know, it was two strides from the post that, that he got in front. But incidentally, Peter O'Sullivan, the great commentator, had always agreed to revoice the national if it was ever run on April the 1st. So April Fool's joke, you see, they were going to rerun it and digitally take the winning post back and I was going to win by two lengths. This was a, always a you know, great thing we were to do on the BBC. Anyway, <coughs> it didn't happen. But just recently I've received a photograph where someone has digitally changed, photoshopped, you call it, I suppose, the thing, and I'm a length in front on crisp and there's red rum coming at me. And there's the winning person. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Isn't it? But the answer to, to your original question, I've even forgotten what it was, but the, the, the thinking pattern was to conserve energy from the front rather than conserve it in behind. And it didn't work. It's funny because every time I watch that bit of footage, I know the the outcome, but you can't help but get really tense and you're thinking, come on, come on. But I knew the outcome, but it's brilliant to watch. And that's why I'm so thankful for YouTube because like I said, I wasn't alive. And yeah. so. Yeah. But Hannah, isn't it amazing that we're still talking about that race? I mean, it's because Red Ron went on to win three and essentially saved the Grand National. But, and therefore Chris Park comes into play. But we're still now, 47 years later or whatever it is, still talking about it, you know? And he, he beat Red Run the next season on a level weight match race. Doncaster beat him eight or 10 lengths, but he got a bit of a leg. And so Fred Winter wouldn't take him back to the national because there is, you know, in those days, a fair bit of strain landing over those big fences. So. It's a pity we never had a chance to to go back. But, you know, it's all in the past, isn't it, now? Well, I wanted to ask the difference in the, the Grand National fences then and now, because they were a lot bigger and a lot more dangerous, weren't they? They were. They were bigger, but more than the height, the drop's been taken away at, at beaches, as you know. You can't take away the turn at the canal turn. And the whole thing is... I'd say a trap really, but they'd hate that. But it is for horse and rider because the third is a big open ditch, a five foot three high, the ditch is four foot wide, the fence is four foot six wide, stands five foot three, so it's a big jump, you know? And so it makes horses sort of go back in the hocks and then you settle down and then you get beaches where it had a big drop. I think it was from the top of the fence to the, landing on the inside was something like 12 foot nine, something like that, you know. Um, and then when horses have gone plonk 
uh, and there's no ground there, they go to Foynaven, the smallest on the course, they're expecting another sort of, and yet because it's small, the ground comes up to meet you. And then you go to the canal turn at right angles. If you're near the front, you can go wide and cut across, you know, it's great. And then Valentine's Brook. So that little area is tricky, tricky, tricky. But the other trick that people don't often see if they haven't ridden in it, looking from the stands down to the chair, people say, well, it's, you know, it's, okay, it's narrower on the course, but it doesn't look very big. No, because the ground is raised on the landing side. So you go to the, the chair. Now, luckily, loose horses can go around, but they used to go all over the place. And you've got a big ditch to jump, a big fence, and then the ground is raised. So they're at full stretch and the raised ground comes up to meet them. So it's a tricky, tricky, the, the whole thing is tricky. But the big change was, besides taking away the drop at Beaches, was removing, there were living stakes, sort of six to nine inches in the ground, in the middle of the fences, and they dressed them with, with spruce. Well, now they have removed all of those, because, you know, if you got very low, like uh, in eventing, you, you, you hit a, a fence, and they do a, do, uh, what is it, where you call, you go head over heels anyway. That's what it was doing, you see. But now they have replaced the middle of the fence with plastic, so it will give. Mm. You know, they, they, and had to, Hannah, they had to change because of public opinion yeah and and as we old jocks say oh well it's not the same it had to change and you've still got to jump 30 fences with 40 horses so it is a big big challenge um oh, i love it i live for it. it it gives me alive i mean i've been involved in the virtual grand national since it started five years ago i love it you know and last year got 4.8 million viewers because there was no national yeah well you know, the Derby gets 1.7 or something, you know, and there's, there's the national virtual. And we're going to do it again this year, but we won't get, obviously, on the day. It'll be the Friday nights, you know, yeah. that for a bit of fun. But anyway, it is a great race, isn't it? I, I've raced in the part of Vichy in, in Czechoslovakia, or, uh, the Czech Republic, um, America, and places. This is the hardest race. There's no doubt about it. Was there a certain part of the course that you that made you particularly nervous? No, I was never nervous. And funny enough, this I'm 78 now, and this is the first season I haven't hunted. I've still got plenty of go. Oh, I'm not nervous about anything. I'm so excited about it. But I'm no stylish, and my legs don't work, my shoulders fall out, you know, my body's gone. So I have never lost, the, you know, the nerve. I didn't have much ability when I was riding, I've got even less now, you know, and it's something that you, you can't control. If you do lose your nerve, and I know plenty of people who have, you can't, it's some, you can't say, oh, get over it, you know, because you can't, it's, it's there or it's not. How did you mentally prepare yourself for the national? Because obviously physically you were riding out at the time, but the mental build-up, I can imagine, was quite intense excitement it's so exciting you can't wait and of course the build-up hammer is so long 
you know, they come out to the pre-parade ring in good time because of the saddling procedure with so many horses. They then go round and round and big build up in the parade ring. Then you're getting in front of the stands in a parade in number orders. It takes a while to get 40 horses together, canter down to the first, come back, circle around, or 40 girths have got to be done. And so it's a big, big build up. All you want to do as a jockey is to be legged up and be allowed to do your own thing, you know, because then you are in charge, you know, basically you hope you are. Uh, it's so exciting. And that, that moment, the roar when the start goes up is fantastic. You know, like, like at Cheltenham, we'll have very shortly the first race when they start, although the crowds will be muted, won't they? But that Cheltenham roar, it, it's so, it's fantastic. It's in enthusiastic no i always look forward to it every day got near i was i was excited and and you try and think of the form of other horses what they'll do you know what will they do in the race bad jumper keep out of his way brainless jockey keep out of his way i lined up once between <coughs> excuse me two americans brothers george and paul sloan george came over and was champion amateur with the giffords one year and Fred Winter always made me or asked me to go down the inner, even when I was riding for other people. He'd take me around and he said, Look, I'll go here, you know, down the inner, brave men, that's where we go. Um, and I lined up one year, I couldn't get the inside veil because there was a grey horse there. So I got second, and, and it was the two American brothers. Well, one of them had his horse by the, by the ears, the reins, you know, he's, it, you'd think it was five furlongs. And the other was leaning back. You'd think he was having a cigarette. You know, he was so relaxed. The difference between them. So I thought, this isn't a very good place to be. So I've edged out and gone over about five. But of course, all those great cavaliers no longer can, can take part because you have to have written so many winners. And dali, dali, dali. Uh, I mean, in my day, the Duke of Albuquerque rode five times. Now, he was a man who lived in a castle in Spain and had his own army, like beef eaters with great big pikes and frilly pants and things. He was a huge, wealthy nobleman. And he bred a, he bred a lot, but he bred one and sent it to us at Winters and rode it five times, called Nerio. And, um, <laughs> you know, a man of great importance, a bit like Prince Charles doing it, you see. So he went to, well, I don't know, he, let's say canal turn and he looks like taking ron barry who was a, a champion jockey at the time looks like taking him out and barry shouted over to him what the f are you doing he said i don't know i've never got this far before <laughs> <laughs> and then there was an american called tim Durant who rode in it when he was 68 well you wouldn't be allowed to now and he remounted three times in order to complete the course. Are you allowed to do you can't that? Re you can't remount anymore anyway, can you? Back in the day, were you allowed to do that? Yeah, oh yeah. I've got a photograph in a book I wrote years ago, coffee table book, on a mare called Vikram, who fell at the last at Wing Canton, so far clear, and she's skidded down, you know, fallen off and I got hold of her. And I wasn't quick enough to jump on her while she was still on the ground, you see. And she got up, stood there, and I couldn't hear another horse coming. But I'd win I'm, a, I'm a little fat fellow, always was. I was winded, you see. 
So I'm trying to jump up on Vikram while she stood there and said, crying out loud, get on. And uh, it took three jumps before I managed to get on and it's still one. But the crowd were jeering and cheering, come on, jump on, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's right that you can't remount. You cannot know what damage a horse has done internally. Yeah. You know, and uh, I, I've seen a few high profile jockeys because you're so, you know, adrenaline's going, when you jumped up, you kick on, you, you didn't think that way. But no, I think that is a good move not to, to remount. You know, there's quite a lot of fatalities recently in racing. Is that down to the horse not being ready, but perhaps owners really wanting them to run, do you think? No, I wouldn't have that at all. Horses are more ready now with the all-weather gallops and facility. You don't get fat horses running, unfit horses in my day, we got big backward three-year-olds from Ireland, you know, it took three runs for them to know what they were doing, you know. Um, no, I, I don't agree with that, but I can't tell you why. And it couldn't have come at a worse time because come to Cheltenham and Aintree, the antis are glued to use us as a platform for their own ends, you see. I mean... <sighs> Plumpton and, you know, there was one fatality the other day and the race was void. I think it was fatality. Anyway, um, no one takes any notice, which is sad, you know. So the big meetings are very dangerous. I've been instrumental in advising various chairmen, as other jockeys are at Aintree. And one of the things I came up with with the late Rose Patterson, which I think was very valid, Jockeys are very proud of their record of getting round. You know, I've ridden eight times, got round seven, won it once, got that day. But it's the end of the four and a half miles. I've seen horses staggering up the run-in because people wanted to finish. Even see, fairly senior jockeys, very senior jockeys. And I said to Rose Patterson, look, instead of the stewards saying to the boys before they go out, Go steady, boys, four and a half miles to go, you know, public are watching, television all around the world. Just go steady, behave yourselves. Well, no one gives a monkey, you know, going to do what they're going to do. The thing to tell them, and I think Mick Fitzgerald has been put in to, 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 to do this after my suggestion, is to say, look, boys, once your horse has gone, don't think of your record of getting round. Think of the horse and the public pull up. And yeah. so we do get... A lot more in, a lot bigger packs of them now, you know, coming up from Valentine's, but it's then the next few fences, if in doubt, pull up. And, and luckily that will save, you know, a few, a few lives. Mm. Especially when you've got all the people watching who are, yeah, yeah. they're just yeah. wanting yeah. to go wrong just so they can write millions and millions of articles yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, people are very proud of their records. I mean, Brian Fletcher, for your time, won three, two on Red Rum and one on Red Alligator, but he got round and placed on eye catcher. He was exceptional. Look at Sam Whaley Cohen over the last few years. You know, he, he is amazing round there. Uh, so some people attack it better than others, or attack is probably the wrong word, ride it better than, than others. But it, it is such an exciting thing. And I rode a horse, in 1969 National, who'd been around a couple of times, finished 13th, you know, maybe 15th. 
and he was bought for a new man, a, a builder, when Milton Keynes was being built. And he, you know, he was all up for it. It was great. And the horse started, not started, opened up in the betting at 250 to one. And he thought, oh, well, I've been told it'll run well. You know, he started backing it. And it came down to about 33s. And the newspaper at the time, this morning, I said, massive Irish gamble on Steel Bridge. Well, it was, it was Jimmy having his few quid on every now and again. So we, we walked him around the course. When I went, Fred Winter, even though I rode for Mrs. Lockhart Smith, Jimmy and his then wife came with us, but she had seven inch stiletto heels, you see. So she got off the, the, mo the tarmac road on the inside to look at the first fence and <laughs> sank, broke her heel. So we put her back on the road and passing policemen took her off. But the stories got worse and worse as we went round from Fred Winter about breaking legs and horses sitting on you and all these sort of things. And Jimmy, who'd bought the horse and been backing it for months, was sick when we got to the landing side of the beach. He was sick, you know, physically, because he thought, oh my God, what, you know, it isn't such a good better after all, you know, and how will he get over this? So Jimmy was sick and he, he was carted off with a policeman and away we went. <laughs> it, you know, it is, it's a great excitement. I, I, I did have a runner once that I bred and he fell at beach a second time. Very exciting. I mean, I've been second twice. I only rode in six, got round in three. So it's been eating me ever since, you know. And of course, my ex-wife won it twice, would have won it three times if the void race had been not void. And then Garrison Savannah was second, 18 years after I was second. So, you know, there'd been a lot of involvement not from me, but, you know, seeing people, uh, Mark, my son, I was so proud when he rode there. So all I want to do is win that race. Well, how can I do it as an owner? But now, you know, too, too old to work, you know, it won't happen. It won't happen. <laughs> Although I buy horses for three Americans, including Charlie Fenwick, who rode the winner, an American who rode the winner in 1980, Ben Nevis. And, you know, we've got half an eye on getting one to, to go there. So that's all that can keep me alive now. Well, if you could pick any horse to run in this year's national of your choosing, who would it be? Two, because you never know what's going to go. Cloth cap of John Joe Neal's Trevor Hemmings mm -hmm. and Kimberlite candy of Tom Laces. But you know, Anna, you look at that field, you're going you're gonna to find the 40 you fancy 20, you know. If Tiger Roll hadn't been pulled out, do you think he could have won it again? I, I think it's doubtful because his form generally has really dissipated, hasn't yeah. it? Uh, he's not shown any spark. The other day when he ran, he was on the bridle for a mile and a half because it was a steady run race. The moment they quickened, went backwards. No, and, and, and funny enough, I agree with Michael O'Leary about his weight should have come down because his form has come down. He's not the horse he was when he won those two races, uh, the two nationals. And then how exciting is that? Little horse, yeah. Arab bread, throw out, you know, it never ran for them. It went to the sales. Nigel Hawke paid 10 grand for it, ran it in a bumper at Market Raisin and sold it to the O'Leary's for 80 grand. Looked a good move. And then the horse has four wins at Cheltenham, four consecutive years, 
and wins two nationals. I mean, like Red Rum, you know, Red Rum was bred to be a sprinter and wins three nationals. It, it, breeding is only the first thing you look at. Then there's all sorts of other things come to play, don't they? So the answer is, I think he's, I think he should have been lowered in the weights, not to keep Michael O'Leary happy, but because his form had deteriorated so much. But it's not to be, and so there'll be plenty of other fairy stories to come out. Just going back to Red Rum, how big was he? Not big. Um, stocky, very, very stocky. He'd be, I suppose, just touching 16 hands, I suppose. Um, and I rode him, for, I did a lot of riding for the BBC stunting after I retired. And I rode him round, not over the fences. He wouldn't, do you know, Red Rum wouldn't jump a, an obstacle at home. Only jumped on the race course. You know, he, he refused. And so Ginger said, look, you can ride him and you ha we'll have two lead horses. You go around the Malmey course, but on the flat. But he said, really watch him on the bend. He's such an old pro that he'll go in on the bend and try and push him out of the way. And he said, look, if he gets struck into, because he was still running then, you see. Yeah. Um, he said, you just be very, very careful. And Ginger is, before your time, was very bold as brass and would say things, especially to a pretty girl like you, you know, just to make you embarrassed, you know, and see what your reaction was. Uh, I mean, when, oh, Carrie Ford rode in it and she had a chance, she'd won the Fox Hunter, Ginger said to the press, well, she's only a broodmare. I mean, how could Carrie? She's only a woman. She's a broodmare. She can't win it. Well, wow. Didn't everyone have a field day over that? Anyway, Ginger legged me up on Red Rum, you see. <coughs> Excuse me. He said, well, Richard, You've seen what he looks like from his backside when he passed you, when he beat you in the national. Now you can look between his ears. I mean, a marvellous thing. Go and enjoy yourself. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> so then after your riding career, you went to the BBC? Was it BBC? Yeah. 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 What, what was that like? Did you find the transition easy or? I did because I was always chatting. Um, while I was riding, uh, ITV were covering it then. If they were, had a, uh, a slot to fill, they'd yank me out and I'd talk away for ages. So, no, I didn't. The only thing is things that change. Um, you're given no training. So I was a jockey, uneducated jockey, hadn't read a newspaper for 15 years, only the racing page. And there you are with a microphone talking. I, my job was to talk about horses going in the paddock. In those days, you had about 10 minutes in the paddock, you know. It was great. And um, listening to a producer in your ear through an earpiece while you're talking, very off-putting, you see. So you've got to keep going. And I'm going to say a slightly rude word, but it's, it, it was true, so I will say it. Three days, uh, my third day, I'm in doing my paddock, and the producer said in my ear, uh, Richard, um, we just spotted a Greek shipping magnate Nubar Gulbenkin. Talk about him. Well, how old would I know about him? I don't know anything about shipping or Greek shipping magnates, you know. So I'm, and they say, but keep talking about the horse and we'll get him, you see. And then when we get him, talk about him. So I'm practicing in my head, Nubar Gulbenkin, the shipping magnate, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to get it right while I'm talking, you see. And they say, we've got him, we've got him. He's by the paddock. So they, Homed in on him. I said, oh, now this is very interesting, ladies and gentlemen. There's Nubar Gulbenkin. I was quite pleased I got it. I said, he's the one shitting on his shooting stick. 
So, I mean, I was called in to headquarters the next day and told, I'd never been up there before or since, up high, that I was the most insignificant of all 26,000 employees. And if I couldn't stop stable language, I'd be out of a job. But it was just something, you know, A, I didn't have any teeth then, they were wobbling, you know, and it was, it, the whole thing was just crazy. Gosh, what a tongue twister. <laughs> but you see how things changed. Gary Lineker, who's had a great career, he did six months training with them, doing a mock-up match of the day every week for six months. He would do it with guests, videos, you know, it, the thing changed. And it, I suppose it had to change. In my day also, we were contracted um, and contracts went from five years to three years to two years to one to six months. You know, the whole thing has, has changed. But no, exciting. So exciting. I mean, to work with people like Peter O'Sullivan. You know, I was put in a little box because Julian Wilson ruled the roost and he wouldn't let us out of our little boxes. I was paddock man. When he went on holiday, I was interviewer and presenter, but, you know, only about six times a year, I suppose. And Peter O'Sullivan, great man. I, I mean, as a jockey, I looked up in that voice. I mean, you have heard it on replays, you know. Um, I went up to him quietly and said, oh, Peter, you know, I've got to do this and, and uh, anything you can, advice you can give me, please. He said, yes, Richard, talk rubbish. Keep talking rubbish like you did as a jockey. You'll be fine. <laughs> that, right. that was that was my only training <laughs> well that was good well i was going to ask how do you think um the coverage for racing has changed oh enormously now hannah we had no access it was run by military people we had no access anywhere um weren't allowed to do anything we had 10 years of a static camera in the changing room it couldn't move, so we could occasionally, if we saw a picture, the producer would press a button and you'd say, oh, look, there's Steve Smith Eccles, you know, he's got 10 stone four, he's looking nervous, or well, he wouldn't, but that sort of thing. Now they have access everywhere. And what changed it was the Grand National that was voided because, well, was it the one that was the bomb scare? Um, oh, yes, anyway, it was the void one. I've done my bit in the paddock, you know, and got the parade, and the race is started, so I've loosened my tie, sat back in my chair, thought, oh, I'm going to enjoy this. And then all mayhem's going on, you know, two false starts, runners going round, people trying to stop them jumping the chair, and the jockeys thought there were cones across there, and Roger Farron, one of the officials there, was saying, stop, stop, stop. And um, they all thought they were antis protesters so he just went between the cones over the top of roger farrant and completed one circuit so the producer shouted in my ear pitman get off your backside and get down there and find out what what can happen and i ran out of i was on a scaffolding thing in a little hut way over the old paddock i ran out of there you see grabbing my overcoat slipped up on the scaffolding panks i'm now winded you know i'm going <gasps> But we all had what they call floor managers. Every presenter had a floor manager. <coughs> me. So my guy picked me up by my shirt, holding my jacket, you see, my coat, and he's pushed me through the crowd. I mean, I'm as far away from the start 
as you could be. And he's pushing people out of the way. So and I'm going, oh. And by the time we got there, the big press circle around Keith Brown, the starter. But BBC, we paid for rights. He just shouted, BBC, BBC, pushed everyone out of the way and plonked me down there, you see, by which time I could talk. Yep. And I said, um, Keith, can you tell us BBC Live? We're live to Hong Kong. They're waiting to know what can happen because they, they, we were part of their program. America, Australia, what can happen? He said, I can tell you exactly. Any horse that has fallen or any horse that has completed one circuit cannot run if we rerun the race later. So great news. I got the news. I was in there. And uh, I thought I'd done a good job and we've eased out of this. Oh, incidentally, <coughs> While we were, I was having the interview, a fist came through the picture and, and just landed short of Keith Brown's starter's chin. And it was John Upson who trained the favourite Zeta's lad, I think. And, and he said, the next time I see you, it'll be in court. It was quite dramatic, good television. Yes. But anyway, I thought I'd done a good job. Off I go. End of the day for me. And as I'm walking back, the producer said, Pittman, Pittman, that was good, but find a steward now. So then they were in a porter cabin, um, four ladders high, you know, one ladder up to one level, up another, but four ladders up really high in this porter cabin. And at the bottom was a guard with a big Busby hat and a feather and a sword, you know. So you can't come here, son, you can't come here. The, the stewards are up there. I said, and I'm very wet, but anyway, I had to do it. So I said, I'm, I'm sorry, they, the stewards have actually asked for us, the BBC, to go up to explain. Oh, in that case, off you go, you see. So we climbed the ladder, cameraman with a camera on, sound man, me. And I knocked on the door of the porter cabin, and out came the then stipendary steward, Patrick Hibbert Foy, with a hyphen, little tiny chap. And he said, yes, Pittman, what do you want? I said, oh, I've been sent along, this is live, all around the world, been sent along to find out what can happen, Patrick. And he said, there are 60,000 people here on the race course and they will be informed before you're told what's happening. Goodbye, shut the door. Well, I mean, how wrong was that? We had 600 million people watching it. I mean, it was just so crass. Well, ever after that, BBC and Aintree had meetings. What can we do in different circumstances? What can we do to, to encompass everyone? And that's when it all started to, to change. And I think now, I mean, you know, the, the little cameras now everywhere, cameras and helmets are only like your little finger. And Luke Harvey in the starting stalls, you know, jumping out. Everywhere you think they have access now. And it's brilliant because racing BHA could see we need to put ourselves out to the wider public, see what's happening. And I think they do. I, I love them. Mm. You're going you're gonna to like some people, you're going to hate them. You know, you, you, you can't like them all. But they all have their own way of doing things. I think it's a fantastic team. Really enjoy it. I, I used to, at Aintree, Grand National, be given a camera and sent off and they'd say what they call colour. Get some colour, you know. Go and find whatever's different, like you're saying. And I went to the entrance where they're streaming in, you know, 30 wide. Looks like a football match. And two Liverpoolian girls, because, you know, on the Friday, they, they all dress up and go to the tan shops, you know, and have high heels and hardly any dresses. And, 
And I, I saw these two very attractive girls and I went up and I said, oh, girls, BBC, will, can oh, yes, love to, love to, you see. Uh, talking to them, where how they come regularly and all that sort of thing from Liverpool, or is it a one-off? Yes, yes. And I said, and ha have you had a bet? And the first one said, oh, yes, I backed so-and-so and so-and-so. And, -so. and I turned to the second girl and said, and excuse me, what, what have you backed? She said, oh, I can't remember, hang on. And she put her hand in her dress yeah. no bra and pulled out a betting slip from underneath her breast oh and the breast came with it and of course the cat you know the producer yeah cut to a wide shot or something else but you see if you're live you have no control mm. at all anything can happen are you a punter now and would you say you're a good one if you are no and no um no, I, my last Grand National winning bet was Minnie Homer. And that was a long time ago. Martin Pipe, Freddie Starr, the, the late comedian owned it. I had horses in training, the Pipes at the time. And I was talking to Carol Pipe, Martin's wife, uh, about Minnie Homer, who'd finished fifth in the Cheltenham Gold Cup. Level weight, 12 stone, fifth, goes to Aintree Grand National, 10 stone four. She said to me, I can't believe it. I mean, he's so well in. So I had, I can't remember, 500 quid each way, 33 to 1. You know, it was a lovely touch and he wins. But I'm not back to winner of the national since. But I don't bet regularly. I, I go if I'm at Cheltenham and not bored, that's the wrong word. You know, I've normally got jobs, chatting jobs and things. Um, when I've got nothing to do, I would have a bet. But uh, no, I wouldn't be successful. I mean, I know people who are. And I know one lady from Nottingham who is so successful, she keeps getting banned from all the punters, or, or the bookmakers rather, and she, she picks out handicaps going on past statistics of when trainers come right, and she watches the horses come down in the weights, because she is convinced, and she's right, that a horse has a winning weight, a winning rating. And once it goes five pounds over that or 10 pounds over, it cannot win. But you know, after a while, it comes down. And then when it gets to its winning weight, bingo, in she goes. You know, all people have different strategies. And the thing about information, you know, oh, a bit of information. Of course there is. And you see horses backed because stable lads have got punters I suppose or girlfriends or boyfriends or mothers or fathers and 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 the big book is if they see money's come from someone who has previously backed David Ellsworth's winners and there's money for it down the price comes straight away you know it's so there is such a thing as information but it could be misleading <coughs> excuse me when we first started training with Fred Winter Horses that worked around that bowl of mile and then up the hill and got up the hill wall like that, we'd all think, well, this will win. But it turned out all they had was stamina, not speed. And they had the stamina to get up the hill. And so lots of fingers were burnt then because from homework, it was misleading. You've got to know your gallops in order to evaluate what you've just seen. But no, I, I mean, betting keeps the thing going, doesn't it? And, it? and this little secrecy, Dick Francis books, you know, that 
people like a bit of skullduggery, don't they? Mentioning the word books, um, you've written a lot of books, haven't you? Long time ago, yeah. I, I wrote with Joe McMally, who worked for SIS in the days. I knew nothing about betting. I wrote for sporting people, never wrote for betting people at all. Um, so we did seven novels, and they, they'd sell 20,000, taking all platforms in, but we could never get above that. We were after Dick Francis Market, as was John Frankham, and as was my ex-wife. None of us could ever get his market. He could sell a million, you yeah. know? So, and before that, I did a couple of coffee table books. I did The Queen Mother's Racing Life, called Fit for a Queen. I did Martin Pipe's autobiography. Uh, um, but I've actually, during lockdown, I wrote 47,000 words of my second biography, autobiography. Oh, wow. I did one in 1976. And I've, a lot's happened since then, you know, Aintree and all these things, BBC. And I wrote 47,000 words and I thought, listen, I'm, I'm so old and forgotten about now, it'll sell two and a half thousand, you know, it won't sell anymore. And I will have ruffled so many feathers in it, do I want to go down that route? Do I want to put myself out there just for, you know, make a few quid? And the answer is no. So I've got 47,000 words uh, sitting in a drawer there. And I've also written a book for early teenagers called Scruffy, the pony that wouldn't be ridden, and Holly, the girl who wouldn't talk. And they both have traumas. And eventually, it's, they help each other to come out of these traumas. Um, and funny enough, I've just contacted a great cartoonist in racing called Birdie, Darren Bird, hoping he would, you know, uh, do some cartoons for it. He's an amazing man. I, I'm amazed the racing post I'm using. Every day, he's so quick, whatever the, the message is, he gets it out there. And Jockey's face is always brilliant. You know, like I'm looking at you now, he... he you absolutely as you are but the horse has always got big teeth you know kicking out of anything and when trump didn't win the election straight away about whatever time it was he put up on social media the horse called getaway trump and it was kicking trump out of the way and he'd got a big hoof mark on his backside his, his hair's all over the place he's that good so if I haven't heard back from him. So if, Bert, if Birdie will illustrate my book, that, that'll come out some, sometime. Oh, fantastic. On a more, sorry, if I could just be brazen, I was also asked to present the story for a film uh, from a big film company. Uh, and I suppose there'd be four or five other people they put it out to and tender, you know, and they'll, they'll either use mine or someone else's or mix them up take a bit from there a bit from there, which is interesting you know um so we might get you riding in that that'd be brilliant would you know have you been to to willie's place no i've, no, I've only been oh. to ireland once and my partner's irish so hopefully i'll be going there more but obviously with covid i can't go anywhere which is no well hannah Willie is a great man. I describe it as organized chaos. We've got two with him that I buy from my Americans. Organized chaos, because there are so many horses, but, but he's a big team, you know. His wife, Jack, is a huge part, riding out. Um, Ruby still rides out. There's Paul Townend, his jockey, and a few amateurs. And, and then he's got a former jockey, his head lad. 
it is like clockwork, but horses going everywhere. Now there are two circular gallops, one inside the other. And so the inside lot are going anti-clockwise, the outside lot are going that way. I mean, you, how the hell you know what's going on? I don't know. And then he's got a straight gallop. Um, but the way he thinks, I, I love the way he thinks. He, he's a brilliant man. Coming away from seeing some horses work, I saw a plantation of small saplings, 200 of them. I said, Willie, well, you're putting a windbreak up, are you? Oh, no, no. He said, that's my pension. They're oaks, oak trees. And uh, he said, I've injected them with truffle sperm. So they will grow truffles. Now, truffles are like gold. Yeah. You know, in, in, the dogs find them in France and they sell in restaurants. They, they scrape them, truffles, and they're like gold. He's got 200 trees that will grow there with truffles under them. Isn't that amazing? Well, there's a man training 300 horses and he's thinking about his pension with truffles. That's a good idea. Wow. <laughs> Perhaps I'll have to do that. No, it does sound amazing. I, I was just trying to picture an inward circle and an outward circle. How does he manage to keep an eye on them all? God knows. I mean, his father trained on this one little circle all his life and trained classic winner and gold cup of champion hurdle, everything. Um, they've evolved how they train. He trains on very deep wood chip. Oh, yeah. And when they're renewing it, they don't go along with a lorry and drop a whole load of shavings. They scrape the old shavings to one side, put the new shavings on the bottom, and then cover them with the old shavings. Because new, new shavings would slip, you know, give horses problems. So they mulch them down, you know. I mean, there's nothing. And another thing about very important you hear yards the whole thing about winners is the health of the yard you know we see the poor colin tizard's had a terrible year you know something wrong there uh five eight years ago john joneal couldn't get a winner. it happens to everyone yeah it's either contaminated feed hay you know hay can grow spores in it you see mm. willie gets his hay from canada and it comes in great big containers because he's got so many horses yeah these containers arrive full of the hey you could eat it yourself the smell is it's good it's all the same there's no difference between it you know from one batch to another and he says because he buys so much it's cheaper than buying hay in ireland really now, yeah now isn't that clever yeah that is so he's got like he's ensuring conformity because i've known smaller yards where i've gone around and and the trainer said to me ah oh, that's my good hay and that's my moderate hay and that's my bad hay so if a horse has got a leg or something it gets the bad hay you know uh, that's economics i suppose okay. <laughs> anyway thank wish you, so you luck thank you well hopefully i'll see you in the future at some point yeah uh, and if you want any you know, if anything comes in your mind about anything else racing-wise, message me or something. Um, I might be helpful, I might not. I don't know. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you. All right, well, have the rest of your day. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Two Betting People interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.